We're going to be back in a narrative of ultimately Ananias and Sapphira, but really it shows two cases, Barnabas and then Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas is an example of how Christian generosity is supposed to look, and Ananias and Sapphira are a threat to the integrity of the early church because they're coming in with bad motives. And so we learn two lessons. One, how it should be if uh, we're going to be generous Christians and fulfill the law of Christ. And the other, how things ought not to be. So uh, let me read the text and then we'll, we'll pray. Acts 4, 32 and then uh, we, did, we did one slide, but let me read the text again here. Acts 4.32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And now one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as they had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which was which translated means son of encouragement, and owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's go that far, then I'll come back and later and we'll read the Ananias and Sapphira part. And we did this last week, okay? We covered this. We talked about the one heart and soul, Christian unity. We talked about how that's gospel-centric, and we see the unity, the power, and the grace. And the central theme of Acts is the resurrection of Christ. Every sermon mentions it. That was the key point the apostles made that would indicate that all the Christian claims were true. The integrity of the Christian gospel and the veracity of what we preach rests on the bodily resurrection of Christ and his bodily ascension into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, Psalm 110.1, and the fact that he's coming again. That's the promise of God that we believe. And so this is all essential. And if you read through Acts you'll see that they preached on this over and over. So therefore, Christian preachers today should realize that they need to do this. We're not going to harm the church by preaching the gospel every week. We're not going to bore people by preaching about Christ. And it shocks me, the bad advice that's going out there to pastors from these sociologists and experts that steer people away from gospel preaching into other things and other agendas. I've been fighting that trend since I was in seminary in the 90s. And Eric and I did a little recording a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about this, about the bad advice that pastors get from the church growth experts. We need to preach Christ and the gospel. They did in Acts, and God added people to the church. And if we don't preach the bodily resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven, and his session at the right hand of God, people will assume that we 
believe the pagan cosmic Christ that everybody else has. They don't mind Christ as long as he's attached to nature and he has, he's no threat to come again in judgment. Do you understand that? He's coming again. He created the world out of nothing. Next Sunday, I've already got my PowerPoint done for next Sunday. I'm going to preach on Colossians 3, 1 and 2, and we'll be talking about Christ and how he is distinguished from the cosmic Christ of the pagans. And the key issue is transcendence. Christ is transcendent. The cosmic Christ is only imminent. So let's go here. We covered this, 34 and 35. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they'd be distributed. I believe that their motives were good. We see in Galatians 6 and verse 2, the law of Christ is thus, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. And it's right that they desire to do that. But there is some discussion amongst the scholars, and I think a valid discussion, as to whether this was really long-term a good idea because of the failure to distinguish between capital assets and income. Now, let me give you a little basic economic lesson, okay? If you're a farmer with land and you have a crop every year and it's your desire to be generous as a Christian, if you have a crop year after year after year, you can give some of that year after year after year. Once the farm is sold and the assets gotten rid of, you're never going to be a giver again because you're going to be in poverty yourself with no capital assets. And that's why socialism always fails. The pilgrims who first came to America started out as socialists until they starved to death. And then they thought, well, we better let people keep some of the the fruit of their own labor. And the next thing you know, they prospered and they could be givers. Now we know for a fact that later in Acts, the Judean church was in utter poverty and Paul had to go all over the Mediterranean basin raising money to relieve the poverty that they had in Judea and Jerusalem. Part of that was persecution, absolutely. Now, the motives are good here, and we'll see as we go forward that this is all purely voluntary. There's no command from God for all Christians to divest themselves of all capital assets. Now, I was in a group that did that in the 70s who uh, thought we want to be really good Christians. And so everybody sold their houses, quit their jobs, divested themselves of all capital, and we moved in and lived in community. But what inadvertently I think, I don't know anybody's motives, but what we ended up with was de facto a pyramid scheme. Because the only way the group continued to be able to live and buy properties for people to live in and to function was new people would join who would be selling their capital assets. And somebody new would join and sell their capital assets. But eventually, there were issues and problems and no new people would join anymore. 
And then the group became utterly destitute. My friends, as Christians, we need to understand these things. If you want to bear one another's burdens, which I know you do, and fulfill the law of Christ and be generous and help people, you're going to need capital assets of some sort or an income of some sort. Okay? And so if you divest yourself of everything, you're on the doorstep of poverty. And you will be a burden to everybody around you. So I think the church is better off if we're not all a burden to everybody else out there. And we should be generous, I believe, from income. But this is what they did in their zeal to fulfill the law of Christ. Yes. Bob, is this working okay? Yes. So I guess one of the things at Gospel of Grace, if we're consistent, if we circumcise their hearts, we don't have to worry about their wallets. <laughs> yeah, well, see, Christians are always generous. It's their nature. And this wasn't required, by the way, because Peter said to Ananias and Spira, when you had that property, wasn't it in your own power? Their sin was lying and deceiving, wanting to look like they were generous more than they actually were. We are free to be givers and to care for one another. I don't say go out and get as rich as you can so you can be a good giver. I say go about doing what God has put in front of you to do in the world that you live in. If you're an engineer, do your engineering. If you're a farmer, raise your crops. If you're some other, like whether it's sales or uh, being into housing, business, whatever, you go about your business and generosity should attend everything that we do. We should always bear one another's burdens. We should always care for those who are hurting, who became perhaps too ill to even work, or a disaster befell them. Imagine all the hurting Christians down in Texas where where the flood washed everything they had away. In that case, the church springs into action. And we take people in and we care for them. Yes. I've heard two very different teachings on the uh, story of the widow's might. One that um, leads you to believe that Jesus was commending her for being so generous and giving all she had. The other um, I heard for the first time from John MacArthur. And he said in no way was Jesus commending that woman because she was part of a very corrupt um, system. There's nothing in that um, story that okay. leads us to believe that she was even a believer. And she gave all she had. And then what did she do? She probably went home and died because she had no money. Um, yeah, I remember that controversy. I'll tell you what has to determine who's right. Luke. Was Luke rebuking that widow. And because I don't think he was, I have to disagree with MacArthur, although his idea is right. She wasn't necessarily helping herself in the long run. But was Luke rebuking the widow? I'd say no, he was rebuking the Pharisees. Okay? The widow's commanded. It may not have been the wisest thing to do, but her heart was in the right place. That's a good cross-reference. Thank you. Because it helps us here. I'm not saying these people are bad. Okay? Barnabas is commanded. Luke wants us to think Barnabas is doing good. He's given as a good example. Ananias and Sapphira are rebuked. Okay? So I'd say this is just me. I did preach through that 
pericope when I preached through Luke. I believe the widow's commended, but that doesn't mean we can't think about some of these things. Okay? Is God telling every widow to divest of whatever they have? No. I think she's just put in a good light in comparison to these wicked leaders. Who's rebuked? Pharisees. Who has a heart for God? The widow, although that doesn't mean she's better off now that she has nothing. It's not an easy topic. What do we know for absolute sure? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I have the highest respect, by the way, for John MacArthur. But Luke is even more important. And what did Luke want us to think? That's how, that's authorial intent. That's a hermeneutic. What is Luke telling us? Now, if you read the whole book of Acts, Luke is telling us that they, gave, that they sold their property and gave. But he also tell us, tells us later they're in poverty. And Paul had to go take an offering in Greece, Asia Minor, all over to try to help them. If you don't have any income, what happens to you? Poverty, right? What do you do with zero income? You starve. But in the case of that group that I joined, we wanted to do like these people here. And we thought we'd be better Christians. Now, in the case of Diane and I, we had nothing going in. So we couldn't go downhill. And when we left, we still had nothing. So we stayed even. But there were some people who sold their houses. Well, you know, you knew some of the people, Noel and Pat, some of our friends. They had a hard time getting back on their feet, didn't they? Because when they came out of that group, interest rates on houses were 15%. And we'd been working in a volunteer organization for five years with no income. And so when Diane and I came out in 1980 with no income, I was fixing cars. Well, I was preaching and fixing cars. And I said, jokingly, but not that jokingly, I was fixing cars for nothing and preaching for nothing. Nobody had any money. So, well, we need a house. We got two kids. We need a house. Interest rate, 15% on a home loan. I don't think we qualified. But my dad came through and helped us, and we assumed a mortgage, and I paid. It, it all worked out, and we ended up with a roof over our head, and God took care of us. I believe our motives were right when we went in. We wanted to serve God and help people find the gospel. But our wisdom was lacking. So I can understand that. Certainly Barnabas is commended here. So that's something to think about. But somebody will come along. You know what I really don't like is the religious leaders manipulating the good intentions of Christians. I'm going to build this huge edifice and I need your money to do it. And you're the widow, so give your widow's might. See, I think that's why I agree with MacArthur. They're taking advantage of these people. You know, and then your cruise of oil won't go empty. Tom. Bob, I always struggle with the um, um, the tax issue meaning that the government has replaced uh, the church in regards to, you know, taking care of everybody's needs and different types of things like that. I, what is the, uh, you know, from, from the Bible on the tax, because give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Well, yeah. Caesar takes 100%, what do you got left? Well, that's why that kind of system always fails. Of course. And so Socialism. when you're looking at kind-hearted Christians, which I really believe that the church can take care of its own, uh, with, and if we weren't taxed, we certainly would be able to do more. How does that... Uh... We have to look at that as God's providential will. See, there's the revealed moral will of God in the Bible. There's the occult, which is forbidden, 
And then providence. Providence contains good and evil. And as Christians, we need to know the difference between good and evil. All right? In God's providence, we may land under an evil government. They certainly did in Acts. But even under an evil government, what we need to do that's revealed, pray for the leaders, pay our taxes as much as possible, live peaceably with all, preach the gospel. But Paul appealed to Rome, which was his citizenship right. Living in America, we have the citizenship right to vote, which I do in every election, even though no one I vote for ever wins. (laughs) But it makes me feel better. Furthermore, we have a citizenship right for redress of grievances. And so we are free to appeal to, quote, Rome, that we do things in a more reasonable way. But in the meantime, we still have Christ's command to bear one another's burdens. Okay? That's how I do it. I just say, use what privileges you're given, but in God's providence, there's good and evil that he allows. And Christians need to be able to identify evil for what it is. Paul did. Look at Romans 1. We'll get to that in a bit. We need to know what's evil and what's good if the Bible's informing our thinking. So, should all Christians give away everything they have? I would say that's a really bad idea because then you become a burden to everybody else and you'll never be able to give. To give, you need an income. To have an income, you need to be able to use your skills. Let's go to the next verse. Barnabas. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and owned a tract of land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he's a Levite, but he's a Jew from the dispersion, so he probably never served in a temple. But he encouraged Gentile believers, and God used Barnabas to really uh, help the process that goes on later in Acts of the Jews and Gentiles to be able to live together as one body in Christ. He was a Greek culture, but Jewish genetically, a Levite. It's called a Hellenistic Jew of the diaspora. And God used him to facilitate unity in the church. It says in Acts 11, 20-24, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began preaching to the Greeks, also preaching to Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So we don't have to guess about Barnabas. If we read Acts, God commends him. And he also gave land and brought it to the apostles' feet. So he's not rebuked for doing this. He's commended. So he's a good example of Christian generosity. It's Luke's, especially in Acts, his procedure to introduce somebody, and then later they're important. Paul's holding the cloaks of the people stoning Stephen. Where'd he come from? Saul, I mean. 
Well, not too much later, he's an important person. And we see that a number of times. Luke is a magnificent writer. And he really understood the Greek language. But now we have a problem. Has anybody ever heard of Ananias and Sapphira? But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, he was portraying this as everything that was being given. Not that it's commanded, because we'll see that in a moment. But that's what he wanted people to think. Look how pious I am. And he wanted people to hold him in high regard. He wanted to look spiritual in the eyes of others as if God doesn't see everything. That is a very convicting thing, isn't it? Boy, has that been brought home to me in the last four years with everything that has gone on with my life and health and bad situations and difficulties. And many times I'm brought to the place where it's just me and the Lord. And you know, then we so appreciate the grace of God in the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. There's no reason trying to convince God that we're better than we are. (laughs) Because he knows everything. But that doesn't have to be a bad thought. Luther, you know, was terrorized by that thought until he found a forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ. It doesn't have to be a bad thought because we can know this. God knows everything. And he knows I'm not all that great or pious. It's a battle daily for my mind to be thinking in a godly way and not just be full of vengeance and anger or whatever. It's a battle. And God knows everything. But here's how that can be a redemptive thought. God knows everything. And in his mercy, he allows me to be part of his family. I can't believe God allows me to be part of this. I can't believe God keeps me alive and allows me to teach his precious flock. You're more important to God than any preacher's reputation ever will be. Oh, that we hear the pure word of God. God allows me to participate, to be part of this. But God is kind and gracious. Nothing is better for me than Sundays. When I come and participate with God's precious family. Yes. Bob, not to get off on another bunny trail here, but um, in the case of Ananias and his wife, and I know you're getting to this a little more, even though they held some back, the the flaw was the fact that they wanted people to believe that they were all in. Well, yeah, they didn't have to give anything. Right. They could have kept all of their land, gone about life, and still been part of the church. But they wanted to be seen as pious in the eyes of man. Right. And the lie, that what they're really rebuked for is lying. The false perception that they'd given everything. Yeah, lying to Peter. See, part of what's going on here, and when we get done with this, we go to the next pericope, which is the miracles done by the hands of the apostles. It's important for the narrative of Luke Acts for the readers to know that once Jesus 
bodily ascended to heaven, he commissioned the apostles and sent them that his authority was still being exercised through the apostles. And so Peter's prophetic insight into Ananias' sin would cause us, as we're reading Luke Acts, to see, oh yeah, Peter is an apostle and the authority of Christ is still being exercised in the church. So again, they were still dealing, Ananias and his wife, with sinful man wanting to be thought of as higher than they really were yeah. in some form of standing. Now, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. In the case of the rich young ruler, and I don't know that this necessarily that, well, that applies. Brings, yeah, we should think about that, yeah. The question I guess I would have was it, well, he conveyed that he'd done all these things in reality. He, was, he really was married to his things, his idols, rather than right. to Christ, right? And he's contrasted. One thing I really like to do as a teacher is to help everyone here read Luke Acts and see what Luke is saying. Earlier in Luke 5, the apostles left everything, right? They left their nets, they left their fishing, and they followed Christ. When the rich young ruler was given the same discipleship opportunity by Christ, he declined. So there's a contrast in Luke between the apostles and this young ruler. And one was held in the grips of money, and the others were not. Does that make sense? Back here. Uh, I was wondering what uh, you uh, thought about. When it says the rich should take poor in their low position and the uh, poor in their high position, and I also was thinking of seek ye first the kingdom of God, and these, all these things will be given to you as well, speaking of food and clothing. I was wondering what you thought of that in relation to the acts being, you know, probably dirt poor. Uh, Well, what happened because of this divestment of capital assets and the severe persecution, which certainly wasn't their fault, Jerusalem and Judea became utterly poor. And they had a famine. And Paul raised money to help them. I think that if people are well adjusted in God's grace to the role in life that he gives them, they go about their business. A lot of people love to give with anonymity because they they don't want to be seen. Okay? And they go about their business and maybe they're They've made a lot of money for whatever reason, and they love to give, but they just assume not be seen. I've, I've noticed that my whole Christian life. And others are just tender-hearted. My dad was like that. He, he just, uh, if he saw somebody in a bad way, he just had to help them. He never became wealthy because he didn't like buying farmland even though he could have done so and had he done that bought all the land that became available he would have become utterly wealthy like these other farmers did but in his mind every time you bought somebody's land some other poor soul had to live in the city (laughs) and he couldn't think of anything worse than living in the city and so he kept his small farm relatively small small by Iowa standards, and spent his time serving others. He was on the church board, the school board, the conservation board, the county commissioner board, and he, he just served, 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 and helped people. But he never asked for anything, and he never wanted to be seen. He was just a kind, generous man. who And 
took care of the people around him. And my dad uh, has been gone since from this earth since 2001, and I still miss him. He was my best fishing buddy. Yes. I was just going to say that with all of this, it makes me think of the Good Samaritan story, you know, with it's kind of like what you're saying. He was going about his business, and the uh, Levite and the priest walked by the injured man, and the Samaritan just happened on the same road and saw the man in need, and so he helped him. It he, was, he took action. Yep. He took action. Bottom line for us to know. And I think we don't take it seriously enough. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That looks like different things. Some people don't have money, but they can visit someone who's in a nursing home. Everybody has different things to contribute, but we should care about God's precious flock. The thing that really bugs me is preachers who fleece the flock. How can you do that? Don't you know these people are precious to Christ? Now, there's a term used here, kept back, that could be translated embezzled. And there may be an illusion. I can't tell you whether it's for purpose or not. But the same term in the Septuagint is used in Joshua 7, one, when Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban, Joshua 7, 1, therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now, if indeed, because the Septuagint uses the same term, embezzled what was under the ban, wasn't for them. He took some of it. Achan did. I believe that what Luke was wants us to see is that what Ananias and Sapphira are doing is a threat to the integrity of the whole church and what God is doing in building his church. And I will say this having been a Christian since 1971, how many hundreds of times have scandals gone through Christian things because of people's misuse of money? TV evangelists, Christians setting up pyramid schemes, one group that my brother was a part of, but he left because of the scandal. Pastor was claiming to be sinless, and he embezzled $83,000 from the church. And when he got caught, he said, Oh, my son, don't be concerned about this matter to the people that caught him. It's like, I can do whatever I want. You all give sacrificially, and if I want $83,000, i am just going to take it. What? You know what that tells me? That you don't really believe the promises of God? that you don't really believe in heaven. You don't really believe in an eternal perspective. And that you think that if I'm comfortable here and now, that's all that matters. Thinking like pagans. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. First of all, a little theology. He lied to the Holy Spirit, lied to God. What do we know? The deity of the Holy Spirit, right? Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one in essence, three in persons. So lying to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. That's just a little added theology, no extra charge. Now in Acts 2, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 5, 
Ananias is filled with Satan. Satan filled your heart to lie. Ananias was living as if God doesn't know and God doesn't see. Notice it says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Don't miss that point. There's no command that everyone has to get rid of their farm. Had he just kept it and not sold it and went about his business and when he had a crop, bring some of it as an offering to the Lord, no problem. No issue, no sin to be rebuked before the whole church. Had he sold it and kept the proceeds and went into some other business, maybe he goes into the plow sharpening business. Whatever. Fine. That was yours. You don't have to give it all away. We're commanded to be generous. But he didn't do that either. He used this as a pretense to lie to the church. So Peter has prophetic insight. And Satan inspired this wicked deed. In Luke, Jesus reveals the thoughts of the heart. Now that's an important point. Peter is commissioned by Jesus And he, too, has this prophetic insight. It says in Luke 2, 34 and 35, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. For a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. The Simeon narrative is very important in Luke-Acts, especially Luke. It sets the theme. It gives previews. Remember reviews and previews? Messiah will reveal the thoughts of hearts. And so now this narrative, I believe this is intended by Luke, shows that God is still doing that only now through the apostles, in particular Peter. The thoughts of hearts are still revealed. The rise and fall of many. The rise of Barnabas became an encouragement in the church. The fall of Ananias. So the theme set in the Simeon narrative is still going on. Later in Luke 5.22, Jesus aware of their reasonings, answer and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? So Peter, filled with the Spirit, carries on Messianic ministry. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men arose, covered him up, carried him out, and they buried him. Can you see why fear would happen? Now that'll put the fear of God into the church, won't it? Some people talk about being slain into the power. I heard MacArthur talking about this one. He had some really good insights. He said these people want to have apostles and prophets today. Are you sure that's what you want? This is exemplary. Let me explain a theological concept. I have it in red on this slide. Exemplary judgment. There's a confusion on this that people fall into. Let me give you an example. When I was in a Bible in Bible college in the 19, early 1970s, a book came out that seemed pious, and it was entitled... If God does not judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. It was written by Leonard Ravenhill. Well, here's the problem. That book's title 
reveals a grave theological error, one that will harm the church because it fails to recognize exemplary judgment. Turn with me. I want us all to look at this together so this doesn't happen to you. 2 Peter 2.6, because this is explicitly stated. God doesn't have to do the same thing over and over and over again for us to know what he thinks about something. Judgment is eternal. Just because San Francisco didn't burn up in whatever that was, he wrote that book, 1960s or whatever, doesn't mean God now approves of homosexuality. He doesn't. But he doesn't have to burn San Francisco to the ground to prove it. He already did that to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if we don't want to believe that, then we fall into grave error. Let's read it. 2 Peter 2.6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, notice what it says. Having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Everyone since then, whoever read the book of Genesis, knows what God thinks of the kind of sin that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. It doesn't imply that the fire is going to come out of heaven and burn it out, burn up a city or a neighborhood again and again and again. It implies that we know this is sin and we know what God thinks about it. And if we ignore what God said, we'll be judged in eternity. Brian, didn't you tell me a story about somebody that you thought had a good insight into that? Maybe. I don't want to. Probably. (laughs) Anyhow, because that God allows the good and the evil to coexist in history is part of his providence. He can and does intervene as he sees fit. But how we know what's good and evil is by having our minds informed by the word of God. And if we start looking around and think, well, here, these people are are doing this and these people are doing that and they're happy They've always got a smile on their face. They're always driving a new car. So I guess God doesn't care. We can't learn that way. We learn by what God said in the word. So I would disagree with Leonard Ravenhill. God owes no one an apology. And people who live like they did in Sodom and Gomorrah and live out their whole life and die should not be shocked when they end up before the judgment of God in eternity. Why? It says here, made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. If the fire doesn't come out of heaven, doesn't mean God approves. Do you get that? Are you hearing me? Yes. I think we were talking, Bob, about how like Romans 17, 117 through 34, when you're talking about that homosexual agenda, it shows the breakdown in nations throughout history and how God removes his hand and over the total judgment dep- of reprobation. reprobation and total depravity sets in. And, and that's what we see uh, ever since, like, I would go back to perhaps like the 60s, and you can follow Romans in parallel with that. That's part of providence and God using the judgment of reprobation, which means you let people have their way and they suffer the consequence of it. But reprobation is really not something you want because your heart gets hard. But God allows people to live out their lives And who knows who's going to hear the gospel and repent. We might prefer to fire unless we start thinking real soberly. Personally, if God allows somebody to live out their life, I believe they may still believe the gospel. So I don't want to be like the disciples 
who demand that the fire comes down. If it does, it does. God can do that too. But the example's already been said. Now look at Luke 22, 31, and 32. I'll read it to you. Remember the story about Peter and how he was tempted and the problem he had when Jesus was arrested. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Stop right there. If you're Peter, you're thinking, well, I hope you didn't give it to him. <laughs> but he did. Rather than saying, no, you can't sift Peter, here's what happened, verse 32. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. God allowed Peter to go through serious trial from Satan and even to fail temporarily. But Peter was turned. This happened, by the way, more than once to Peter. And to strengthen Peter, who escaped from the clutches of Satan, though the trial was bitter and the failure was public, was later filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and preached the gospel, and God used it to begin the church as we know it. Do you think God can allow Satan to sift us, but yet pull us out of the fire? Now, Ananias served as an example. This is the exemplary judgment. He didn't turn again. He dropped dead on the spot. Yikes. You know what's really interesting? Sapphira wasn't invited to the funeral. It says in 2 Timothy 2.19, I'll quit with this. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. My dear friends, God will sustain us. He will even use really bad things and he'll redeem us from those things and make us stronger and better people than we would have been had there been no trial that we went through, like Peter. But we need to have the fear of God and make sure we're not like Ananias. We can't lie to the Holy Spirit. We can't take advantage of the Lord's flock. We can't live any way we see fit and think God doesn't see. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us to live and learn and grow and be sanctified and to live as generous people who bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of our Lord Jesus. May we be people who persevere even in trial. And when we are turned, strengthen our brethren like Peter. Thank you, Lord. And we pray that you'd bless the service that follows and bless Eric as he preaches to us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.